Welcome to the Gospel for Life. We have four Treasure Valley pastors committed to showing that the gospel is not just for that religious part of your life, but rather it's for all of life. You never graduate from the gospel. I'm Josh Bales, pastor of the Well Church, here with Russell Herman, pastor at Cloverdale United Reformed Church, Phil Moran, pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church, and Jonathan Van Hoogen, pastor at Spring United Reformed Church. Now, if you'd like to find out more about us or catch past broadcasts or get information about our annual conference, you can find us at ReformationVoice.com. Alrighty, on the program today we have the pastor at Caldwell First Baptist Church, Brett Siegelkoff. Thank you so much for coming in today with us. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, so tell us just a little bit about yourself. When did you start pastoring the Caldwell First Baptist Church? I started here um, back in the middle of October, and uh, so just coming on almost a year here, coming up in a couple months, and uh, we moved out from the Portland area, uh, Portland, Oregon, and uh, yeah, so we're just blessed to be here. Um, it's it's been great to to come to a strong, healthy church, and um, came after a pastor's been there over thirty years. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, and he, he's still there, still part of the ministry. That's a blessing. It really is. It really is. I've been it's been exciting to see. That transition happened and and just being able to incorporate him and continue to have him there as part of the ministry. Cool. So what's your website so people can go to it? Um, Caldwell First Baptist. Okay. Excellent. Awesome. And then on the program, as always, we have the illustrious Dr. <laughs> Phil Moran. <laughs> With Christ Presbyterian, how you doing, Phil? I'm doing great, and, and really glad to be here and, and uh, be overly flattered by you. <laughs> well, we are we were out uh, of our two normal guys here, uh, Pastor Jonathan Van Hoogen and and Russ uh, Herman are not here, but we do have Brett in the studio, so we're going to jump right into it today. This week, we're going to be talking about the Trinity. And uh, Michael Reeves has written an excellent book called Delighting in the Trinity. If you don't have it, I would highly recommend you go and, and Google it and get it on Amazon right now. And in that book, he uncovers how many Christians view the Trinity. He, this is what he says, quote, The Trinity is seen not as a solution and a delight, but as an oddity and a problem. In fact, some of the ways people talk about the Trinity only seem to reinforce the idea. Think, for example, of all those desperate-sounding illustrations. The Trinity, some helpful soul explains, is a bit like an egg, where there is the shell, the yolk, and the white, and yet it is all one egg. No, says another, the Trinity is more like a shamrock leaf. That's one leaf, but it's got three bits sticking out, just like the Father, Son, and Spirit, end quote. And one wonders why the world laughs. For whether the Trinity is compared to shrubbery, uh, streaky bacon, the three states of H2O, or a three-headed giant, it begins to sound, well, bizarre, like some pointless and unsightly growth on our understanding of God, one that could surely be lofted off with no consequence other than a universal sigh of relief. That's a mouthful, but I think he kind of captures what many people at least communicate you know, um, unconsciously about or subconsciously about the Trinity. So let's let's just respond to that idea. The Trinity is largely seen not as a delight, but rather as a problem that Christians have to face. Yeah, unfortunately, he's really onto something there, um, and I like the way that that he expresses it. And uh, I I haven't read his book. I'm going to read it on on uh, on, on your recommendation, Josh. 
but I sure like his title, uh, Delighting in the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's begin to take delight in the way that God has revealed himself as Father, Son, and, and, and Holy Spirit. And let's delight in that ministry, in that uh, mystery, uh, which it is. I think most of the errors, and we're going to get into that, most of the errors come from our lame efforts to explain the unexplainable rather than accepting the mystery and, and, and living into it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that there's a, um, there is a, a true tension there. I, the first thing I, I generally think of when I approach the Trinity is there's a mysterious element to understanding the Trinity that we're always going to wrestle with. We're always going to be groping in the dark for these illustrations. I particularly thought it was humorous, the, the bacon one. Um, <laughs> different, and, and I had never thought about that before, but then I, st- I actually started making me think, yeah, and then I got hungry. <laughs> so I, I think that there's a, a definite tension there with the mystery of the Trinity and our, and our attempts to be able to, to define it well, which can lead to a better understanding once we want to understand the mystery, but then also leads to, to greater error as, as, as we try to dispel what, what we'll never fully understand. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that the reason it can feel like a problem at times is because of that, that mystery. Mm-hmm. But then I love his concept as well of delighting in the Trinity and saying, it's not a problem. Mm-hmm. It's a mystery to discover. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, one of the things he points out in the book is that, Oftentimes when we're trying to kind of um, make the problems of the Trinity to go away, either with our, our Mormon friends or Jehovah's Witness friends or, or with our children who are coming to this concept for the first time, we simply try to show how it's not a contradiction and then we just stop there as if theology is just meant to be something to be solved and not delighted in. Mm-hmm. Now, now, of course, we should try to solve some of the things that, that God has made clear in his word. There's no doubt about that. But the fact that fathers, uh, that God has revealed himself as father is immediately something for us to delight in. Mm-hmm. And, and let's acknowledge, you know, right up front, as we talk about, well, several things about the Trinity, I, I would want to say right up front. Number one, um, Trinity is the way that God has revealed himself. And so to, to accept the Trinity is simply to accept God's self-revelation that's given to us in his word mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, and, and most fully in the flesh, the revelation given, given to us by his son. Mm-hmm. So um, to, to accept the, 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 accept the Trinity is simply to, to acknowledge, yes, God, this is the way you have revealed yourself. And we, and we bow to this knowledge that you've given us, even though it'd be a, a mystery to us. Um, and probably a, a second thing to acknowledge about the Trinity is let's acknowledge, brothers, that it it took the church a few centuries to hammer this out mm-hmm. at the, at the beginning of, of the of the Christian movement. Uh, you know, between the Book of Acts and the you know the third or fourth century, um, there was some heavy duty theological work going on, yeah. reflecting on Scripture. Uh, they didn't just cook it up on their own. The, the, those early church fathers, uh, they they. It was, they didn't invent the doctrine of the Trinity. They saw it in Scripture, and they and they hammered out how to make sense of it together. And they often did that by rejecting false notions of the Trinity. Yeah. Uh, that often is the way good theology is done, by figuring out how do you reject bad ideas. Yeah. So um, let's, let's acknowledge that the, it took a long time for the, for the church to, to get to where we are today. Yeah. 
And we're, we're indebted not only to God's word, we're also indebted to those early church fathers who hammered this out and left us uh, this kind of theological core that the church has been built on ever since. Absolutely. You know, I would add to that um, that the, the, the creeds were an attempt to define something against heresy, but they were an attempt to also define what the church already believed. And so it's so interesting that, that by writing those creeds, and and defining um, what what the Trinity was and the relationship that they had, they they state those things as against heresy, but on the daily life of the church, I, I think that they delighted in the Trinity. So yeah. they already had this belief; they already worshipped the Triune right. God, and and so sometimes if we focus too much on the creeds, which were an attempt to to stop the heresy and clarify yeah. what the church already believed. You know, then we stop short of actually then delighting in the Trinity yeah. because uh, it's about a relationship and worship, yeah. whereas right. the creeds are about de- defining the parameters of our belief and our knowledge of who God is in his revelation. Right. Absolutely. Well, let's look at that word Trinity. I mean, th- that word obviously is not found in Scripture, uh, but it's a uh, combination of you know, two parts try, you know, pointing to the idea that there's a threeness and then, uh, unity, uh, which points to the fact that there's a oneness. And so the Trinity points to the fact that there's a three in oneness. You think that's an accurate description of what we're trying to capture here when we're looking at the doctrine of God? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and to speak Christianly about God, once again, is to only acknowledge what God has revealed. And as we look through Scripture, uh, first of all, we see we see Jesus over and over again, and, and we could review the, the many places where he does, but Jesus over and over again claiming full divinity for himself uh, that uh, that he is that he is fully divine, and yet relating to his heavenly Father. And we could scratch our start scratching our heads over that, and and well, wow, what does that mean? How can He's fully divine, and yet he's relating to Father mm-hmm. and telling us that we can call God Father. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Scripture, right from the beginning, we can go all the way back to the book of Genesis, where it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and uh, uh, that the Spirit of God is is the active, uh, actively at work in creation. But then we read in the New Testament. Uh, that in the beginning was the Word, and, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and without Him was not anything made that was made. What? So Jesus is also active in creation. Okay, now we've got the, the kind of the bare bones of, a, of, of evidence that leads us, pushes us toward accepting the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is three persons, each person distinct and uh with a with an identity revealed to us in Scripture, and yet beyond it even goes beyond uh, a, a unity of agreement of purpose or or simply being in agreement or liking each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I can be, uh, I don't want to sound flip about the members of the Trinity, but that that they are one. Yeah. That these three Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that that word is is our attempt to to our best attempt to be able to define what you were just describing. And and I think it is a good word. I, I think that 
it, it is limited, you know, to, to, to our human language and, and it has to be defined, you know, just as you did. It has to be, it has to be explained to somebody as we say, uh, do you believe in the Trinity? Depending on that person's background, depending on, on, on where they are coming from, they're going to have all kinds of different perspectives on exactly what the Trinity is. And I think like so many things in the Christian faith, there are, there are people use our language in different ways. Yeah. And, and so I think defining our term in that way of saying, well, when I say the Trinity, I mean yeah. what you just described through creation, through Jesus in the book of John and talking about his relationship to the Father and, and then the sending of the Holy Spirit. Um, I, I think all comes into play as we're explaining, even to people who uh, are curious about the faith for the first time, yeah. being able to really describe, you know, what this is, and then being prepared for the still, even after the explanation, to look like, huh? Yeah, <laughs> because it's still a, a mystery to us all to some degree. There's still yeah. aspects that we don't fully understand, but right, we try. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's for the last minute and a half, let me throw you guys a bombshell. The Athanasian Creed said this. Uh, Athanasian Creed was accepted in many churches uh, since the 6th century, but this is what it says. Whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold to the Catholic, that is the church's orthodox faith. Which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Now that's a pretty bold statement that you cannot be saved unless you hold to the doctrine of the Trinity that this is the God that you worship. Do you guys agree with that? Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted, Josh, that you've, you've finally come up with something we can disagree about. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, <laughs> That's the first time? That, that may, this may be the first time. <laughs> um, well, the first thought that pops into my head is that I don't think the thief on the cross had a doctrine of the Trinity. And he was saved. Right. Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise. But history shows us that any group that abandons the doctrine of the Trinity will drift away from, will drift away from the gospel. Okay, we're going to have to pick up there tomorrow. I want to get on this question again okay. tomorrow. First thing, so please tune in tomorrow the Gospel for Life. You can check us out at ReformationVoice.com. We'll see you next time. 